0: I'm Robbie Dale, and this is Brilliantly Easy, Stupidly Difficult, a podcast in celebration of Nine Others about what we choose to do. Episode 2. In Episode 1, I introduced myself. I'm Robbie, one-time dinner attendee, now-time fan. We heard from Katie and Matthew, the founders of Nine Others, and we explored how Nine Others dinners work. And... We also heard from Hunter S. Thompson. Actually, we haven't quite finished with him because before we get up any more steam, there's one more quote of his, uh, a warning, if you will, that I feel is relevant here.
1: To give advice to a man who asks what to do with his life implies something very close to egomania. All advice can only be a product of the man who gives it. What is truth to one may be disaster to another
0: it's an important point in episode one i shared my story and throughout the next five episodes you'll hear stories from nine others as well as ideas and thinking from philosophers and other luminaries who i think have something to add and you may find value in all of these things you may see your reflection in just some but the point of course is to act on what you hear in your own terms To use their time and experience and successes and failures to inform your own. Or, of course, to choose not to. That's up to you. In episode one, I laid out my journey from toothbrush con artist to grappler with regret. And as I talked to the nine guests I interviewed for this series, I did so in the context of what I believe to be a universal challenge one I think is rooted in many of the more specific questions we struggle with each day at home and at work, the question of what we should choose to do. Today. Tomorrow. With our time. With our lives. At some point in my grapple to avoid a life of regrets, I came across an Australian nurse, Bronnie Ware and her blog post and later book, Regrets of the Dying. In episode one, I mentioned that I was scared of ending up as a cliché, of falling for the same regrets that seem so stupidly difficult to avoid because we hear about them so often. Regrets of the Dying lists five of those. I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself, not what others expected of me. I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends. I wish I had the courage to express my feelings. And I wish I'd let myself be happier. In talking to the guests I've interviewed for this series, I had these in mind. I wanted to reflect on them further as a lens through which we might all think about how we manage our time and what we choose to do. Some of them may resonate with you more than others. But there's a crucial aspect to each of these regrets. They hang on the word... Wish. Wishes, I think, aren't things that should concern us. They exist in fairy tales, along with talking candelabras and singing crabs and chirpy woodland fauna. They are not for this realm of existence. This life doesn't deal in the currency of wishes, but rather the legal tender of tangible actions. And as such, While that means we can't just close our eyes really tight and hope and dream our way to success, it does mean that each and every one of us already has a genie at our disposal. She's called hard graft. Sitting, waiting, hoping to be picked gets us nowhere, but more comfortable on the sofa. But by putting one foot in front of the other, day after day after day, you can go further than you ever imagined. That's everyone's choice. Guest number one at our virtual dinner is Molly Flatt, an author and journalist who writes about the way technology influences how we work, think and ultimately live. In 2018, she finally published her debut novel, The Charmed Life of Alex Moore, that was some 10 years in the making. Step by step by step by step. She's currently writing the follow-up. It's progressing at more of a canter.
2: So my agent pitched the book to my editor. It's called The Charmed Life of Alex Moore. Um, She pitched it as Bridget Jones meets The Matrix which uh, tells you as much and as little as you need to know. So it's um, a kind of commercial fiction set in present-day uh, London startup scene. Uh, in fact, ensured it to where we are sitting right now. <laughs> right about what you know, absolutely, right? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but it's also partly set in the kind of yeah. wilderness of the Orkney Islands. Um, and so it starts off uh, very much reading as quite a conventional sort of urban contemporary thriller, I suppose, it's about... A female entrepreneur who finally somehow has ditched her limiting self-beliefs has unlocked you know that life that she's always wanted she quit her dead-end job and started her dream startup she's on the front page of tube, tube magazines um she's invited to all sorts of women in tech parties um, but weird things start happening to her so muggings there's a stalker uh, this kind of crazy druggy. This is ag- not based on what you know. N- n- this, this this deviates, this deviates slightly, slightly, only slightly. Hopefully, um, a druggy addict kind of accuses her of murdering a stranger, um, and so she gets invited to Orkney to collaborate on a white paper up there, and um, she goes, and that's where she kind of discovers the secret that's behind her success and why all these strange things are happening.
0: It truly is a tale for our time, and this podcast. I'm imagining what you started with looked significantly different from what you've edited. Oh,
2: up Oh absolutely with. I mean I think the first iteration was a YA novel actually right. I mean it always had certain key characters and themes and the concept of the library in it but it changed absolutely radically and it was like I almost needed to grow up as I was writing it and right. find the right form for the book and also grow in skills so that I was able to do what I wanted to do with this book which was Write a book that would draw in people who wouldn't necessarily read uh, books that had a slightly kind of speculative or magical Mm. element. I wanted Mm. it to wear, I suppose, what another writer might have chosen to turn that into a very strong genre book. I wanted to wear those elements very lightly for for people to almost be tricked into enjoying the present day realist contemporary plot so much and find it so compelling and relatable that they were tricked into suddenly letting this layer peel back from the world and but to always go back to this thing so it felt real i didn't want to go to another realm i didn't want to transport to another universe and so it took yeah it took me a long time to figure out how to do that sure um and yeah i just needed to grow in confidence and Figure out what I was trying to say. I think that's the key thing in a book. You have to know so strongly what you're trying to say and then you kind of find a way to say it. Mm. Whereas I think I spent a long time thinking it was about this and then about this uh, or I just didn't have it clear enough. And there was a moment when I took a summer off and decided, right, you know, I can't keep rehashing this damn thing. I've got to find a way, you know, what's going wrong? What's not working? And that really sent me back to the drawing board. And I did a lot of screenwriting exercises and things then to be very prescriptive about it to to bring it down to structural nuts and bolts and fine if I wanted to subvert those and there's plenty of complexity and ambiguity but actually to make sure I knew at heart what the hell are you trying to say here with this book and that unlocked it then yeah, yeah. it really became what the final product was. I'm a massive overproducer, yeah, yeah. so often I didn't give myself enough time to think mm. and to plan. I was so paranoid of being that cliche of a writer who talks about it but doesn't actually produce. And so I was always very focused on getting words on the page. Um, and I think, yeah, I wrote great scenes and great drama and great dialogue and interesting stuff happening, but what was it all... Yeah. What was it all leading to? I think the heart of it wasn't there, and actually that is also something about timing, about me having the emotional maturity um, to write this thing. It's oh, you end up spouting such vomitous writing cliches when you talk about writing finding your voice, mm-hmm. but it really is, and, and, and I think part of the issue was that I, you know, most people who know me well, I think expected. Um, when I was writing a novel, I told them I was writing a novel that it would be very uh, literary and rambling and esoteric and full of kind of people saying very important philosophical things. Um, And I think I kind of thought that a little bit too. And then I realised, it took me a while to realise, actually, no, I'm a really plotty writer. I love escapism. I love a really, really strong drive of plot. I love wit, I love things that are playful, I love things that wear any of that heavier stuff much, much more lightly. Um, I love the skill that it takes to actually be simple. And so it took me a while to adjust the image of myself, of what yeah. kind of novel writer I really was actually.
0: Sound familiar? I've been amazed, talking to different people from different walks of life, with different skills and different experiences, doing different things. How many lessons of life present themselves over and over? And this, I think, is a particularly powerful example. The writer who writes great stuff, but asks a question that is most dispiriting when there is no answer. What was it all leading to? It reminds me of so many books and songs and films and comedic birthday cards where the craft on show is exemplary – clever plot, beautiful production, expert direction, perfectly structured cake pun – but all for naught, because it just doesn't hit home. It doesn't go anywhere, it doesn't say anything. And how can you call it a success if you're not saying what you need to say, not choosing what you want to choose?
2: I don't understand how if you were trying to chase trends or write cynically or write for an audience, how that would be enough to keep you going because it's just such a slog. You get into so many tangles. There are so, you know, I wrote this thing whilst working full time and then, you know, handed it in the day before my daughter was born and then had to edit around having a tiny baby and doing everything else. And you know, what, would mo- what on earth would motivate you most strongly enough, unless you had a pre-signed and sealed deal from a publisher, which was waiting to be fulfilled, you know, it's got to be a personal passion project to pull you through yeah. just the, the agony of the writing process, really. The problem yeah. is if you base something on the commercial success or yeah. you're playing a game with it, you very, very easily lose because so much of that is luck. Mm. So, you know, you can't chase trends because they're ahead of you. You know, yeah. it's impossible. You know, it's, it sounds very disingenuous to see, say this, but honestly, I think my most satisfying and genuinely happy moment was not getting the call from my agent with the offer of the book deal or signing the contract or even seeing the hardbacks, you know, mm. opening the box of hardbacks yeah, or yeah. seeing them on the shelf at Waterstones or whatever. It was the moment I finished a draft that was... Pretty much as good as I could make it. Never perfect, because you know, that's a trap i probably also why it took so, seven years yeah. to write. Um, That's a trap we all fall into. But you know, a draft where I was like, at my current ability of skill, I think that is, you know, as good a justice as I can do to this idea. And it's finished, and it's a thing. And that was, because that's what I set out to do. Yeah. It was wonderful to get published, and you know, And of course I wanted to get published and have broader readers, but that's not actually why I did it. I did it because I decided that from the moment I started writing that novel, I would always write novels and I would start one and I would finish it. And it would only be one at a time. And that was, you know, that was a real watermark in my life. I'd done that thing.
0: Just a reminder, it took Molly the best part of a decade to go from a niggling idea to a fully-fledged, on-the-shelves of Waterstones book. And a lot happens in that process. A lot of doing, a lot of undoing, and a lot of fiddling around the outside, especially towards the end. But the most satisfying bit for Molly was the finishing something that she'd started. Something that she'd chosen to start. Something that was entirely true to herself. That more than the contract or the sales or the reviews or maybe even the future film adaptation is the success and that taste of personal internal success of one's choosing strikes me as rocket fuel for a life well
2: lived you know the only way you're going to create something that's going to be huge success is by making something brilliant and the only way i know to make something as brilliant as i can is to do something genuine and so yeah it's um I certainly never expected it, and still don't, to make me money. So it's not like I've given up any day Mm. jobs. I just believe the only way I could make it for a success for other people is to make it a success for myself.
0: Whereas Molly took 10 years to grind out her first novel, it's taken me a sprightly two of interrupted trudging and late night inspiration to get this podcast in your ears. Was it worth it? Well, you'll have your own views on that. But it was something I chose to do. And as a personal mission, as a commitment to making something genuine that I believe in, and having it shaped into something that I'm happy with, feels wholly and hearteningly worthwhile. Not a second wasted, not a moment of regret.
1: It's time for the next course. I'm Simon Lawson of Lawson's Timber Builders Merchants. We're a fourth generation family business, essentially trying to rebuild the Quaker models, where the Round Trees and Capri's particularly built communities around work and I think offered a very acceptable face of capitalism.
0: Guest number two at our virtual dinner. I think the
1: whole Structure of capitalism, particularly since the '80s, mm. has been driven by short-term, quick buck. And uh, I think that has a whole lot of uh, negative connotations through ecology to extremes of wealth to a range of things, which I think we're seeing the consequences of yeah. today. Yeah. Um, and we'll continue unless we stand up in, in you know certain people I network with. We're, you know, we're, we're lobbying Parliament and various other things to actually be much more proactive in in shaping. The capitalist business model, as the Roundtree's showed, it's good business yeah. practice. Yeah, but the benefit is it also brings people together. Yeah, and that's what's desperately needed. I've got no problem making a profit. Sure, for me, it's about what you do with it.
0: Simon is not a Quaker himself, though these titans of British business are somewhere in his bloodline. He has, as he told me, Quaker in his DNA. Something that led him to write a master's thesis on love at work. 15,000 words exploring ways we can regain the Quaker ethos of human connection and compassion at work. Nine Others is, at its heart, a business network. It's frequented by entrepreneurs, those in the startup scene, and others who are looking to make decisions that will affect their business, charity, social enterprise, or career. And so it strikes me as important, not least from working in and with many organizations who subscribe to the whims of short-term capitalism, to realize that it isn't just individuals that have to make choices and have to stand by them, but organizations too. Though, of course, it's human endeavor that will always be at the wheel.
1: I was really driven to say, how, how do we bring compassion back into work? And how does that start with my leadership? How does that start with treating people and how does that start with listening and really understanding others Yeah. rather than from my middle class perspective of this is what I think we should do. This is the fix. Simon has done this
0: very personally by inviting his staff to his own house for dinner. He cooks for them, talks to them and seeks to understand what it is they want to learn from the people who know the business best.
1: Why didn't you drive a fancy car and have a biggie up? But, you know, yeah. that's their image. That's what they think a boss should be. Yes. I mean, it's interesting. They're, they're conditioned. And they're, uh, that's why they, I think initially when we started the lunches too, they were suspicious. Any new staff coming to join us? Interestingly, a, in my dissertation, okay. I wrote a quote. A guy came, joined us at Wandsworth. He came up for lunch three weeks later. Right. And he said, wow, I've never, ever been to the chairman's house of any business I've worked for and it's just let alone have him cook for me because yeah. I cook for them I serve them in that so I don't have caterers in I yeah. prepare food for them so there's a literal element to that there's a practical element yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so it was a very really interesting and I've always used that quote because it really really struck home he was so bowled over that I was serving him food rather than caterers or whatever he thought was going to happen and we shape our company around what they if that's the right term what, what these what our staff Really want out of a business. So that's our philosophy. It's not about me, it's about how yeah. we shape our business. And how, how many staff have you got? Uh, just under 500. Okay, so this is not a small, this is not five people coming no, to sit around the I table don't know and, the people that turn up. I've got yeah. seven turn up on Friday. Right. And I, I try and say nothing. And they call the valleys nunches and, and, and no managers, no directors. These are people driving lorries, forklift drivers, whatever. Yeah. And they all, in the last five years, I'd say, they get their lists from people and say, can you tell Simon that? And, <laughs> yeah. and they come and tell me exactly what it's like. And a really simple thing, the best... I mean, this is really a small part of the story, but it's so crucial. So the last one I had, well, not last... Sorry, two times two, two ago, about three months ago. Yeah. They said... Um, so when we get prizes given at head office or gifts, we auction it out to all the staff on a, okay. on a yeah. raffle. Yeah, yeah. So we thought as directors, great. So, we get about 30, 40 people wanting them. So, one of the guys said, it wasn't, it was about nine months ago, sorry, he said, um, Why don't you do boxing tickets? Because we love boxing. I completely missed it. Yeah. So, I said, Fine, what, what do you want? So, they, one of these fights came up. So, I said, Right, I'll get four tickets, holiday, uh, hotel for the night, travel, all paid in. So, we put that on the, on the network. We had 300 people apply. And we completely missed it. Yeah, that, that was the. That's what they really. They, they don't want, I don't know whatever comedy club tickets or something yeah something at the Albert Hall or whatever yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and we completely missed it and uh, it's been a real so having that connection with staff <laughs> what are the most amazing things about these lunches yeah you know these are guys on not minimum wage but you know the, the lower yeah. end of the scale all the suggestions that come out of this and I've been doing it for seven eight years now four or five times a year three to five times a year what does he get? fantastic Mm. it's not one thing they've said hand on heart that I can say no that's a bit that's a bit weird yeah 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 so it's a moving you know when you get that spiritual no I didn't I expected we want more money that's never come up because we pay well yeah Um, we have a profit share scheme yeah well we've done a staff survey it's anonymous so 72% of our staff filled it in So we had 380, 400 people, whatever. And the two most interesting things for me came out of it. It was was excellent. People can believe some of the stats, but two were really interesting. So are you proud to work for the company that you employ? 90% of us, 90% of them, all the the people were Well, you were were also proud, presumably. (laughs) And do you trust the company that you work for? Again, 85%. Wow. Now, John Lewis' stats are around 70% on those industries. So we, we were massively skewed which i thought was, was interesting they highlighted some areas we've got to improve on which is great they're not which we're actually doing at the moment so it's great i enjoy those things that come out because not we're not perfect so we're always improving so sickness pay policy communication and health and safety which we clear on two sites because going through big redevelopment circuit okay. so we really we understood that but here's how it gets sorted so we'll do another one in two years
0: it's great what simon's doing And that's proven by the results he's seeing in his organisation. But it's also proven by the feeling of hopelessness and dread you get thinking back to all the situations where people don't talk to each other to learn and improve. The places you've worked where everyone's voice isn't always heard. The inconceivable actions of politicians long since departed from everyday life. The fumbled relationships that neither flourish nor end due to embarrassed inaction. The paralysis in our own lives when we stop examining what we're doing.
1: I always believe there should be no level GCC in compassion, right? And how do we have empathy as humans? Yeah. I think that there's a whole range of things where that would be important. How we respond to refugees, to prison service, to homelessness. How do we connect with that thing that we just find too difficult? So we walk past a homeless man on the street. I do it. So for me, just on a business level, so for me, make an extra pound, or do we help someone and spend a pound? This is a no-brainer. Yeah. But yeah. The, but the interesting, the business case for it, which, which when I do my talks, I start with the business case is, we are an immensely profitable business. Yeah. George and G- Joseph Crouchie weren't poor. They gave everything away. Sure. But they weren't. But they poor. made it first. I, in 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 the case for it, I've got to say this is, this will make you money. And the challenge is to make it happen. Obviously, I think we can sit here and talk about it. It'd be more interesting if someone of my staff was here and say. Actually, someone talks a load of bullets. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing happens like that. For well, the first day. Yeah, no, the, the first day. The, the evidence worried. is from our surveys is yeah. we are doing something. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm the first to admit we haven't got it completely That's right. A good point, actually. Yeah. But, yeah. but I am determined on my journey to do the best I can.
0: Sometimes in business, as in life, we avoid asking questions and talking to others because we're scared we'll get the answer we don't want to hear one that is ultimately negative, and one that demands additional effort. So instead, we ignore those questions, so as to never come face-to-face with the answers at all. To wait until everything crumbles to dust. Because then, at least, there's no hard questions left to answer. Which is quite mad. And a devastating way to spend what precious time we have. If you want things to be better, if you want to improve then the very worst you can expect from asking for feedback or input is an actionable to-do list of things you can work on to reach your end goal. A literal guide to how to better use your time, which really doesn't sound too bad at all to me, if those are the choices. After all, a practical list is a brilliantly easy thing to follow. And it's exactly what Simon has done to great effect, building a community of colleagues inspired by the Quaker tradition who are all building a better business, and a better life, together. Thank you to Molly and Simon for their time. You can find out all about Molly and her writing at mollyflat.com and learn more about Lawson's timber building and fencing supplies and more about their approach to business at lawsons.co.uk Next time we're adding a couple of people with dream jobs to the Nine Others virtual dinner table. I hope you'll join us. Brilliantly Easy Stupidly Difficult is a podcast for the Nine Others network. You can find the credits and anything else you need to know at nineothers.com slash podcast.